I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Listeners, I hope you like that version. There was some request to tone down the vaudevillian uh, tones with which I've usually recited our inspiring congressional mandate, and that was just as dulcet as I could make it. And this week, we are going to explore the history and meaning of the Emoluments Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution states, No person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, except of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. On January 23rd, the nonprofit legal watchdog group Crew filed a lawsuit alleging that President Donald Trump is violating the Emoluments Clause. They argued that foreign governments are doing business at Trump hotels and other buildings in the United States and that the Trump organization is conducting business abroad. Has President Trump violated the Foreign Emoluments Clause? And has he violated the Domestic Emoluments Clause found in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, which states the president shall at stated times receive for his services a compensation and he shall not receive any other emolument from the United States or any of them. We have lots to discuss and joining us to sort it all out are two of America's leading experts on the Foreign Emoluments Clause who are actively writing and thinking about this fascinating debate. Brian Gorod is chief counsel of the Constitutional Accountability Center in Washington, D.C., and Andy Graywall is the Joseph F. Rosenfield Fellow in Law at the University of Iowa School of Law. Brian, Andy, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let us jump right in with the question. I literally can't wait to hear the uh, your uh, thoughts about, namely, does the Foreign Emoluments Clause apply to the president in the first place? I ask this because I, of course, turned to the wonderful interactive Constitution, which are we the people listeners know so much about. And in the essays on the Foreign Emoluments Clause, written by Zephyr Teacher out and Seth Tillman, uh, Professor Tillman argues that the Emoluments Clause was not intended to apply to the president. He notes that President George Washington accepted and kept two diplomatic gifts and didn't ask for congressional consent. And he notes that Alexander Hamilton asked by the Senate to produce a financial statement listing all persons holding office under the United States did not include members of Congress or the president. So, Brian, let me begin with you. Does the Foreign Emoluments Clause apply to the president of the United States? I think it's clear that it does. And it's you know worth noting that President Trump's own lawyer acknowledges that at his confirmation hearing. Attorney General uh, nominee Jeff Sessions acknowledged that. If you look at the Constitution's text, it says no person holding any office of profit or trust. You know, that broad language clearly encompasses the presidency, an office that the Constitution um, repeatedly, you know, recognizes is an office. And, you know, it's worth noting what the purpose of the Foreign Emoluments Clause was. You know, it was um, reflected the framers' deep-rooted concerns about corruption, uh, their deep-rooted concerns about foreign entanglements compromising the independence of federal officers. And there's just no reason to think that given those deep concerns, ones that are reflected repeatedly throughout debates over the Constitution and reflected in the Constitution itself, that they would have exempted the president from that. And I think there's lots of founding-era evidence 
that suggests that the president was included, including, you know, documents in which early officers were listed. And there's various versions of the document that uh, Seth Tillman cites, and some of which do seem to include the president and the vice president as well. Very interesting. Andy, what is your thought about whether or not the Foreign Emoluments Clause applies to the President of the United States? I think it's uh, quite clear that it's unclear. Uh, regarding the regarding the teach-out and Tillman pieces, I especially enjoyed the fact that they engaged in this scholarly discussion before anyone could have imagined that Donald Trump would be president. And they had a very scholarly back and forth. And it's the type of back and forth where you, where you read one side and you say, huh, that's pretty convincing. Then you look at the other side and say, well, that person has a good point. And I was particularly pleased when they jointly wrote an essay calling this a difficult interpretive question. Uh, that approach is also reflected in different opinions of the Office of Legal Counsel, which provides authoritative advice to executive branch agencies. For the most of the history of that office, they equated officers under the Monuments Clause with appointed officers. Appointed officers, of course, don't include the president. The president is the one who appoints them. Uh, but there were a couple opinions in which the clause was, in fact, applied to the president. So I see tension regarding executive branch interpretations, and I see two scholars going back and forth who agree it's a difficult interpretive question, and I've tried to wrestle with it, and I changed my mind from one day to the next. Mm. Well, that, uh, thank you for putting it uh, in such a nuanced fashion, Brian. I think we need another round on this. Is it fair to say that there's some evidence that at least founders like Hamilton thought the clause did not apply, and yet the text arguably does apply, and found and practice, beginning with President Andrew Jackson, uh, suggests that presidents assumed it did apply. Uh, uh, Larry Tribe has a piece uh, on the Brookings website noting that when Simon Bolivar presented Jackson with a gold medal, Jackson asked Congress whether he could keep it. John Tyler and Martin Van Buren both turned to Congress. So I, I just want to descriptively sum up the state of the debate. Um, might, might some founders have thought that it didn't apply, but early practice and subsequent uh, interpretations assumed it did? Well, I mean, the early practice and subsequent history definitely did. I mean, I, it's, you know, fair that there are some OLC opinions that, you know, reserve on the question, but the vast weight of the authority is that this clause, you know, clearly applied to the president. Um, and that's consistent with OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, consistently recognizing that this is a clause that's about corruption. It's a concern, it's a clause that addresses foreign influence and recognizing that given the broad language, given um, how critical it was to the framers' um, desire to root out corruption, you know, it would need to apply to the president. And that's entirely consistent with its language and consistent with, you know, a lot of contemporary evidence as well. So, Andy, if, if you, you, you say you go back and forth, if you were putting the case against applying the Emoluments Clause to the president, uh, what would it be? And, it, and it, why did Hamilton think that the president uh, and elected officials were exempt? Um, and and what's, what's the case against applying it to the president today? Well, I would look at the actual language of the clause, which refers to officers under the United States. The Supreme Court had a chance to consider language like this in the statutory context, where a senator was convicted of a crime and the statutory punishment prohibited from holding any office under the United States. And the senator said, the statute's unconstitutional. How can a statute that prohibits me from holding any office under the United States displace the Senate's own power to dispel its members? The Supreme Court there said, well, when you're talking about offices under the United States, 
you're talking about offices that are established after the government is already organized. That is after the senators have been put in place, after the president has been elected. So under, which this word under, which appears in the Monuments Clause, could be read to refer to offices under the already established government. The president, of course, is not an office under the already established government. He is a precursor to putting the government in place. And that would be one textual point uh, that complicates the issue for me. Interesting. Uh, Brian, your response and, you know, just again, acknowledging the complexity of the history uh, directly, do we think that Hamilton thought there was a reason not to, ex to there was a reason to exempt the president? Could, could it be the fact that the president was separately constrained by the domestic emoluments clause? Or uh, is, is, what, is, what, what, do you, what do you make of, of the case that uh, Andy has just offered? Sure. I mean, I, I think on the textual point, it's important to recognize that, you know, this language, any office of profit or trust um, is used or similar language is used repeatedly um, throughout the Constitution and consistently um, includes the president. And it's worth noting that, you know, Edmund Randolph, for example, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, you know, talked about the danger of the president. He specifically referred to the president receiving emoluments from foreign powers. You know, that's why I don't think that we can look to the domestic emoluments clause and say, oh, we think that covers it, because the domestic emoluments clause deals with a related but very distinct concern, which was the danger of corruption from within, that the president's independence might be compromised by um, people giving him uh, advantages or benefits or profits from Congress or from the states. And so it just didn't address the very real concern that the framers had about foreign corruption. Um, that's what the Foreign Emoluments Clause was designed to address, and I think it clearly encompasses the president. This is great. Andy, one more beat on this. I have to say, I was I asked my uh, son, uh, Hugo, uh, who's 10, to read the explainers in the interactive Constitution and to write an essay about whether or not the Emoluments Clause applies to the president. So I need just one more beat so that he can, uh, you know, have both sides. Um, why would Hamilton have thought the president uh, was not bound? What are the narrower OLC opinions holding that the president is not bound? And what's the relation of this 1966 act, which Congress enacted, saying that the president can't accept gifts over a certain amount? Uh, what's the relevance of that to the debate? Uh, well, there's a few questions in there. I'll try to go in the order that I remember them. Uh, regarding the Foreign Gifts and Decorations Act, it is true that Congress has passed a broad statute that, in a sense, implements the Emoluments Clause. But it is, by its very terms, broader than the clause. For example, it reaches gifts to family members. So the fact that a statute would be, this particular statute is broader uh, than the clause doesn't surprise me. Regarding Hamilton, again, it comes back to uh, early practice. George Washington received gifts, and these gifts were widely reported. And it makes we actually, it just makes one pause before assuming that the president is subject to the clause. Regarding the OLC opinions, the one time in recent memory that the OLC has addressed this issue in 2009 was when President Obama was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And in that opinion, the OLC used one word and one word only to say that Obama was covered by the clause. Surely, that is it. That was the extent of its analysis. So, I'm not convinced one way or another. I do think it is a close question. Uh, reasonable minds can differ, and the two persons who have thought about it the most agree that it's difficult. 
I, I, I'm going to address this to Andy just because you're making the case against, and I, and I just want to—I'm just curious. What, what, aside from the theory of whether the president preceded the creation of government, why would Hamilton want to exempt elected officials? Well, I can't speak to his motives. I'd love to meet him maybe one day when we, <laughs> we all would. Uh, but in terms of purposes, right now, the Secretary of State or a U.S. officer can hop on a plane, go to Russia, China for a few days. In early American practice, that was not the case. If you were going to hop on a ship and go across the Atlantic, you were going to stay there for a long time. The persons who were who were most susceptible to corruption would be persons who became immersed in, for example, French society like Benjamin Franklin. So the framers may have believed that the target of this clause is persons who are actually living abroad like Franklin or John Adams, whereas the president, of course, would remain stateside. And he would not need to be protected in the same way as ambassadors and diplomats living years and years abroad. Fascinating. Great example. Brian, talk a little bit about the, the history of the application of the clause you mentioned uh, some examples. I'm going to tell the story, which I uncovered in my research on William Howard Taft, of how when Taft is Secretary of War, he goes to Japan, and the Emperor of Japan wants to give a beautiful tapestry to Taft's wife, Nellie. And Taft is such a constitutionalist that he insists that it would violate the Foreign Emoluments Clause and the tapestry should go to the Smithsonian. But Nellie really wants the tapestry. So she appeals to President Roosevelt, and he decides that she is not an officer of the United States, unlike Taft, and therefore she can keep the tapestry. So give us other examples of how the Emoluments Clause has applied throughout history and what light that can cast on our current controversies. Sure. We have a long history of you know presidents um, who are given gifts by foreign dignitaries, foreign states, asking Congress if they can keep them. As you mentioned earlier, you know President Andrew Jackson was awarded a gold medal. Um, he asked what Congress whether he could keep it. Congress said no. Um, John Tyler and Martin Van Buren, um, they both sought approval for Congress when they were offered gifts by foreign leaders. You know, what I think is really interesting is we don't have, with isolated exceptions like the Nobel Clause, for example, or benefit, pension benefits that President Reagan was entitled to under California law, we don't have a lot of recent questions, um, in large part because what modern presidents have all done prior to this one um, is divest and put their assets in a blind trust. So we don't have the kind of questions um, that we're all thinking about right now. Uh, thank you for that. Um, Andy, is, is that how, how much weight does that history get, the fact that presidents since Jackson have assumed it applies? Well, it's, they've assumed it at very little cost to them. Uh, for example, John F. Kennedy was going to potentially accept uh, honorary Irish citizenship. And the OLC said, well, this is probably a bad idea under the Emoluments Clause. Uh, Barack Obama proposed to accept the Nobel Peace Prize, and he actually gave away the money in any event. No president has divested an active business. Jimmy Carter put his peanut farm in a blind trust, and when he returned to it, it had been mismanaged and actually had, was in a state of somewhat financial ruin. So telling uh, it's hard to compare Donald Trump's ownerships and his activities or non-activities regarding his business to the fact that a prior president returned a snuff box or an ambassador returned a snuff box or divested shares in stock that they may have held in Exxon. I think this is just a very different scenario, which we have not seen before. Thank you for that. All right. Thank you both uh, for having well mooted the question of whether or not the clause applies to the president. I think it's fair to state based on this excellent discussion 
that it's there are arguments on both sides. Listeners can make up their own minds, but that descriptively, presidents since Jackson have assumed it applied to them. Um, Brian, now let's jump into the question of whether or not President Trump's business dealings violate the clause. Why don't you make the case about why you think they do? Well, I think it's worth you know noting that the language in the clause is very broad. You know, the foreign emolument clause. Uh, prohibits the president without Congress's consent from accepting any present, emolument, office or title of any kind, whatever. And I think what that language, you know, coupled with the strong anti-corruption concerns that motivated it, makes clear is the framers were trying to prevent the president or other officers from taking any kinds of benefits or profits um, from foreign states. They realized that any benefit or profit could raise questions about the president's motives, whether the president was acting in the national interest or in his own personal self-interest. They didn't want the American people to have to wonder about that, which is exactly why they put this prescription in the Constitution. And what we have now is, you know, a president with vast business holdings, uh, considerable dealings with foreign states and foreign dignitaries, and these involvements, you know, likely run afoul of the clause, and they certainly raised the concerns that motivated it. I mean, we're already seeing stories about foreign dignitaries staying at the Trump Hotel in order to curry favor with the president. We don't want to have to worry about whether President Trump's policy decisions are motivated by who's staying at his hotels and who isn't. Thank you very much for that. Andy, you published last week a fascinating paper, The Foreign Emoluments Clause and the Chief Executive in which you argue that a payment to a hotel owned by the Trump family uh, would not violate the Emoluments Clause because the money is paid to a corporate entity and not to Trump directly. And you said of the crew lawsuit, it'd be a lot of fun to watch, but I imagine it will be kicked out. Tell us, uh, and I know the argument is, is sophisticated and, and nuanced, why you believe that payments to Trump-owned hotels would not violate the Emoluments Clause. Yeah, so it, it did take me 43 pages and 21,000 words to articulate. Uh, so I'm not sure I can do it justice here. I would uh, encourage listeners to read the whole paper, which I've tried very hard to write in an accessible style. Yes. But the best I can do uh, with this format, first I would point out that uh, we have dozens of opinions from both the legislative and executive branches that offer a narrower interpretation of the Emoluments Clause than you're seeing in the Crew lawsuit, in the Brookings paper, and so on. Over and over and over and over again, the legislative and executive branches have said an emolument means an amount paid by a foreign government to a U.S. officer in exchange for services. Is the officer an employee or an officer or an independent contractor of the foreign government? You would not know that these authorities even exist from reading the material on the crew side. So if this is a standard under which we should apply the clause, has a foreign government paid a US officer for services, a payment to the Trump Hotel by itself would not trigger the clause. If a diplomat goes into Trump Grill and purchases a Taco Bell for $18, which is its menu price, believe it or not, that is, that is not a payment to President Trump services personally provided uh, by him. If I walked into the Trump Tower Grill, no one would say that I've received any services from President Trump. So I do think that there's a lot relating to the definition, and there are definitions out there. They're also implicit uh, in the Constitution itself. The Legislative Emoluments Clause, more commonly called the Ineligibility, ineligibility Clause, says that 
Uh, if you're a senator or a member of the House of Representatives and you knock up the emoluments of a position in the in the executive branch or the judicial branch, you can't hop into that position. They do not want senators getting together and saying that, you know what, the chief justice of the Supreme Court will make $20 million next year and now nominate me for that position. The legislative debate surrounding that clause, as applied to Justice Hugo Black, uh, showed a clear understanding among the senators involved that emoluments included office-related payments, employment-related payments, not any payment imaginable. Thank you for that concise and illuminating summary. Listeners should definitely uh, read the paper, uh, The Foreign Emoluments Clause and the Chief Executive by Andy Grewal. Uh, Brian, there's, there's a lot in here, but broadly, what's your response to Andy's argument that ordinary business transactions between foreign governments and the Trump Organization don't violate the Emoluments Clause, only transactions conducted at other than arm's length or transactions involving the provision of services by the president personally establish potential violations? Sure. Well, I, I think I need to push back slightly on this idea that emolument should, should be defined as narrowly um, as Andy suggests. You know, if you look at the definition of the term emolument, and particularly at definitions um, that were prevalent at the time the Constitution was drafted, you know, emolument was defined broadly as advantage, benefit, comfort. And that's consistent with the broad language surrounding it, you know, prohibiting emoluments of any kind. And it's, again, consistent with the purpose, which was to root out corruption, to root out foreign influence. And I think it's difficult to imagine what exactly the motivation of the framers might have been if we adopt this very narrow um, interpretation. You know, if they were so concerned about corruption, and, and we know that they are, you know, they, Alexander Hamilton said nothing was more to be desired than that every practical obstacle should be opposed to cabal, intrigue, and corruption. They used the term corruption no fewer than 54 times um, during the debates about the Constitution. Given how deeply concerned they were about corruption, why would they have so limited this prescription to only prohibit service monetary benefits received for services performed? And it's worth noting there's also lots of discussion um, from the founding. You know, there are specific examples um, that motivated the founders, including you know gifts of snuff boxes, for example. Those surely weren't given um, in exchange for specific services performed. They were given in order to curry favor, or there was at least a concern that the receipt of it might compromise an officer's independence. And that's why we have this broad prescription in the Constitution, um, using broad language and making clear that emoluments of any kind are prohibited. Thank you for that. Andy, we know that there is a vigorous debate on the Supreme Court about the meaning of corruption in the context of campaign finance. And in the Citizens United line of cases, uh, more conservative justices have argued that corruption should be defined narrowly as quid pro quo corruption, and the more liberal justices have insisted that anything that gives rise to an appearance of corruption or the idea that elected officials might be dependent on donors rather than on voters should be raised constitutional questions. My, my question is, do, is, do you think that your substantive argument that the clause is not violated is also close? And were the court to define corruption more broadly, might it rule against you or not? Well, I'm fully sympathetic to the idea that the Constitution addresses corruption. I am skeptical that this obscure clause uh, provides the best argument for checking the executive. Uh, a president who is corrupted by foreign leaders probably is not faithfully executing the law as required by Article 2 and should be impeached. An, article, uh, an executive who takes a bribe should be impeached. Uh, 
under the impeachment clause, a president who commits treason should be impeached. There are lots of things in the Constitution. I have a hard time believing that this term emolument, uh, which Brienne defines uh, very broadly by referring to any benefit or advantage whatsoever, is a source or is a proper focus. Regarding definitions, again, I'm not going to read footnotes from an article on our podcast, but I would point out that uh, the principal definition of the term uh, refers to services provided. Your 10-year-old, if he picks up a dictionary today or the one that existed in the 1790s or the first American dictionary, Merriam-Webster in 1828, the very first definition will be compensation for services provided. And that is the one that the executive and legislative branches have used for the last 200 years. Thank you for that. Um, and I will tell uh, Hugo to read the dictionary as well. Um, Brian, uh, what do you make of Andy's argument that uh, the Foreign Emoluments Clause is not the place to address the kinds of corruption uh, like bribery from foreign powers? And maybe this is also the time to bring in the domestic emoluments clause, uh, which, uh, as I said at the intro, prohibits um, the president from uh, receiving any other emolument from the United States or any of them uh, beyond his uh, uh, compensation for services. Um, how does that fit into the picture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I'd push back again against the idea that these provisions are obscure, at least question why um, they're obscure. I mean, they've, they've been obscure of late, not because they're not important, not because the framers didn't think they were important, but because presidents and other office holders have gone to great lengths to make sure that they didn't run afoul of them. So they haven't had to be invoked in popular conversation um, in the way that they are now. But they are and have always been incredibly important parts of the Constitution. Um, the framers you know, spoke at length, as I said, about how important it was to weed out corruption. They knew how fatal it could be to the young nation when the Constitution was drafted, and they realized that it was a danger that would continue into the future. Um, I think you can't quote the founders enough, so I'll quote George Mason, who said, if we do not provide against corruption, our government will soon be at an end. Um, because they were so concerned about corruption, um, they included the Foreign Emoluments Clause, and as you said, they also included the Domestic Emoluments Clause. And, you know, it's worth noting that they uh, didn't include the domestic emoluments clause just to um, – they didn't include the domestic emoluments clause just to, to underscore the point. They included it to address a related but distinct concern, which was that the president's independence, which was so important to the framers, they you know, created um, separate independent branches. They were so concerned about the president's independence, they didn't want it to be compromised by domestic elements, by um, Congress trying to curry favor with the president, by individual states trying to do so. Um, they were deeply concerned about corruption, and these two clauses are evidence of that. Um, you know, Andy rightly mentioned that the president also has an obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. It's certainly possible um, that if his independence were compromised, he might not be doing that. But it's, of course, difficult to know, you know, why the president takes any given action or what's motivating him. The framers didn't want to leave it to doubt, and they didn't want to leave the appearance of corruption. And that's why they included these clauses in the Constitution. Uh, thank you for that. Andy, what is the relevance uh, to this debate of the domestic emoluments clause? Can you imagine a circumstance where President Trump might be charged with violating the emoluments, the domestic emoluments clause by receiving uh, any other emolument from the United States in addition to his salary, um, and how does that fit into the picture? 
Well, I think a couple of background points. One is regarding the domestic emoluments clause. I do not think that anyone could seriously suggest that it applies to anyone but the president. That is, it has an extraordinarily narrow scope. And yet, U.S. officers could be corrupted by Congress. Congress could tell the Secretary of Transportation, approve this pipeline, don't approve this pipeline. And they might say, we will pass a statute increasing your salary. Yet the framers, notwithstanding the potential corruption of executive branch officials other than the president, clearly did not include anyone but the president, not even the vice president within the domestic emoluments clause, which cuts against this argument regarding the foreign emoluments clause that it, it has to apply to everyone. Uh, it's undeniable that the domestic emoluments clause has a, has a narrower scope. Regarding President Trump, he probably has already violated it. Under the definition offered by Crew and so on and by Brienne, emoluments are any benefit of any kind. President Trump is 70 years old. He is entitled to Social Security benefits. Social Security benefits are beyond the amounts fixed by salary, fixed by statute for presidential compensation. So under their analysis, a Social Security payment paid to President Trump is unconstitutional. Under their analysis, Barack Obama held up to a million dollars in bonds. The interest income he received is unconstitutional. I find this, wholly aside from the textual arguments, I find it very hard to believe that probably every president in our history has committed impeachable offenses. Thank you for that. Uh, Brian. what about the history of uh, arguments under the Domestic Emoluments Clause? President Ronald Reagan asked his lawyers whether or not his retirement benefits from the state of California when he was governor d violated the Domestic Emoluments Clause, and they concluded that uh, they did not. Uh, and what's your response to Andy on these points? Sure. I, I think the Reagan uh, Office of Legal Counsel opinion is an important one because it underscores the point that I've been making, which is that these clauses, both the foreign and the domestic clause, um, are really about corruption and about the conferral of benefits that might corrupt or compromise uh, a president's independence. The um, Reagan opinion said that the term emolument has a strong connotation of payments, which have a potential of influencing or corrupting the integrity of the recipient. And that's why OLC said there was no problem with President Reagan receiving his pension benefits under California law. He was entitled to those pension benefits. Under California law, he had become entitled to them for service he provided before he was president, and his receipt of them didn't present any kind of concern about corruption. I think that opinion helps explain why you know, there was no problem with President Obama receiving interest from the bonds that he acquired, notably in an effort to comply with ethics directives um, often given to the president and other executive officials, um, and why Social Security payments wouldn't run afoul of the domestic clause. Um, if a president is receiving benefits that he is entitled to under law, um, if he is receiving the same interest payments that any holder of a U.S. bond um, would hold, that doesn't raise the sort of corruption concerns um, that we have with respect to Trump's business holdings, where you know his hotels may be getting you know substantial um, tax incentives um, or tax breaks from states and localities. You know he may be in a position to influence um, HUD loans and subsidies that could benefit. Um, his uh, hotels and his organization. So they're just very different concerns um, than the type Andy were talk was talking about. Interesting. So, Andy, you're, uh, you argue that uh, you know, emoluments has to be related to the discharge of duties, and Brian counters that 
uh, emolument is any uh, benefit that may be corrupting. Uh, what's your response to that? Well, I think uh, Brianna has offered a very strong and sensible purpose-based interpretation to the clause. And uh, if I were to adopt that method of interpretation, I think I would be sympathetic to a lot of the concerns she raised. And uh, I would, again, emphasize that her approach is very sensible, that it's uh, defining emolument in terms of corruption. That is not the definition that we're seeing in the lawsuits. Tribe and so on argue that it's any payment, that if you buy a Taco Bell, a foreign diplomat buys a Taco Bell, that is an impeachable offense. They're very clear that wholly apart from any type of payment that could potentially corrupt just a mere receipt of a dollar is an impeachable offense. So I think uh, responding to Brianne, again, I, I respect uh, her more nuanced approach. I think it has a lot of intellectual force, not one that I subscribe to, but I do think listeners should be aware that uh, Brianne's argument is not the one that is being made in the lawsuit. Thank you for that. All right, I think it's now time to turn to the technical questions of whether or not this lawsuit is likely to succeed, whether the uh, people who are bringing it have legal standing to bring it, and whether courts are likely to hear it. The technical term is, is it justiciable? And I'll ask Brian, why, why is it that none of these suits have come to court before? From, from Jackson to JFK, we've heard all sorts of presidents have had advice about whether payments violate the Emoluments Clause. Why, why haven't we seen cases on it? And do you believe that this case is likely to move forward uh, because courts will hold that the people have standing? Well, I think, you know, cases haven't come before because past presidents have sought congressional approval. They've sought ethics advice about what they can and can't do. And they've been willing to follow that advice. You know, President Trump here, you know, before the inauguration, um, was encouraged by bipartisan ethics experts, by the Office of Government Ethics um, to divest and chose not to. Um, essentially saying that, you know, he's present, he can't have a conflict. Um, and so that's why we're having these questions raised now, and that's why we're having this lawsuit filed. And I think, you know, this is the first uh, emoluments clause lawsuit filed um, in this administration, but I suspect it won't be the last, um, because there's, you know, lots of parties who potentially um, might be injured by the president's violation of the emoluments clauses. It's not difficult to imagine, for example, you know, hotel competitors, um, suing because they are being injured by foreign dignitaries staying at the Trump hotels rather than their hotels in an effort to curry favor um, with the administration. And you know, just to, to turn back to Andy's point about how broadly um, we're interpreting uh, emolument, you know, it's worth noting that um, even corruption concerns don't mean that you uh, adopt a view in which any fair market transaction is acceptable. I, you know, I think the problem is that any time the president is receiving benefits from uh, foreign dignitaries or states, or from the federal government, or or um, states within the nation, you know, we have concerns um, about corruption and about whether it will uh, compromise his independence. And that's what you know. Again, the clauses were intended to root out. Thank you for that, um, Andy. Your thoughts directly on the standing issue. To have standing, a group has to show evidence that it's been harmed in some ways by the president's actions. Simply complaining about an action is not enough. And the crew group alleges that its workload has increased because Trump has given them new concerns to investigate. It has to turn its resources away from fighting other kinds of corruption to fighting against Trump's alleged violation. Other legal scholars, including Josh Blackman, a friend of this podcast, said this injury is self-inflicted and does not find support in the Supreme Court's case law. What do you think on the standing question? So just uh, to reveal my bias, after spending two months 
every waking hour living, breathing, writing and researching the Monuments Clause, nothing would make me happier to see it actually decided by a court, preferably the <laughs> Supreme Court. So I would love it if they have standing. I've come up with at least one clever way for standing to arise in a later factual scenario. So I want a court to decide this. Regarding, but speaking as a neutral scholar here, I have a hard time. It uh, seems a little bit odd that crew would spend two months telling the public that there's an emoluments clause violation and then complain that people were listening to them. It's a very odd, very odd claim of standing. Putting aside the actual uh, prior precedents, which uh, maybe we can talk about in a second round, but I just, in terms of the, we have to devote more resources arguments, uh, wholly aside from statutory and constitutional considerations, it does strike me as optically odd. Uh, why don't you tell us about what you think the better standing argument is down the line? Huh. Well, this is uh, this is very clever, but um, in prior years, the correction that the government has taken to an officer who has received prohibited emoluments is to withhold that officer's pay. So if someone is working in Australia and takes pay in consideration for services from Australia, the U.S. government says, well, you took 100000 bucks from Australia. We're going to take $100,000 out of your retirement benefits. That has been the correction. And in those circumstances, if the next president, next Democratic president, I assume, says, well, Mr. Trump took emoluments, we aren't going to pay him his presidential pension. In those circumstances, there would be a particularized injury. Donald Trump would be able to sue and so on. And it would be great political theater. Uh, that is the only way that I've come up with for standing to arise in a controversy over the clause. But of course, I, I would love to hear more sound uh, pats. Uh, that is a wonderful argument. It may indeed, as you say, take a while to uh, materialize. Uh, so I'll ask Brian if uh, a court proves unconvinced by the claim that simply devoting resources to expose a constitutional violation itself creates standing, what would a better argument be? I've seen arguments by Erwin Chemerinsky uh, saying that if the District of Columbia can allege that it's lost economically because of the benefits derived from the Trump violation of the Emoluments Clause, D.C. could sue. Others have said that competing D.C. hotels could claim that they've lost clients. What do you think the best standing argument is, and is there a standing argument strong enough to persuade a court to hear the case? I think those are both potentially strong standing arguments. I mean, it's certainly difficult to imagine that a competitor hotel that's losing business because foreign dignitaries are staying at the Trump hotels, you know, it's difficult to say that they don't have a concrete um, direct injury, which is what courts look for when they're determining whether a party has standing. Um, you know, one could imagine that uh, if the president and his organization have an interest in a company that threatens the environment, um, for example, um, you know, it was um, at one point the president had a stake in the Dakota pipeline. Um, if he continued to have that stake and um, you know, it's possible that individuals who um, could sue uh, to seek to use um, individuals who seek to use, you know, natural resources that are threatened could sue. Um, you know, it's not difficult to imagine um, lots of individuals um, that might have, you know, concrete and direct injuries caused by policies that, in turn, um, cause a violation of the clauses, or at least potentially cause a violation of the clauses. And, you know, it's worth noting that, you know, the framers were not only concerned about corruption, um, they also believed very strongly in the federal courts. And they created the federal courts um, to ensure that 
they would be able to check illegal action and unconstitutional action by the other branches. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind as a background principle when one you know, thinks about different parties and whether they might have the sufficient injury to sue. Thanks for that. All right, Andy, I'm understanding that you'd love this to go to court because of the great work you've devoted to the question. If courts decide that there is no standing, what are other arenas in which the question might be mooted? Uh, is a alleged violation of the Emoluments Clause a potentially impeachable offense? Might uh, Democrats uh, try to bring impeachment charges if Congress refuses to authorize uh, the uh, gifts? And how else might this play out outside the courtroom if there's no standing? Yeah, in terms of the relevant forum, I do think you have to look no further than the text of the clause itself. It refers to congressional consent. Uh, so I think Congress is the right forum if we can't think of a clever way to get into courts. Uh, whether a violation of the clause is an impeachable offense, this is something that's been hotly debated. Uh, under one theory, an impeachable offense is just whatever the House of Representatives and Senate say it is. Uh, I think regarding Clinton, there was a lot of... Uh, Bill Clinton, there was a lot of scholarly debate as, as to what exactly satisfies uh, a crime or misdemeanor under the impeachment clause uh, to warrant impeachment. So I don't know the answer to that question. Just as a threshold matter, I do think if you had a president who was improperly foreign influenced, I would be inclined to think that that's an impeachable offense, maybe not under the Monuments Clause, maybe under the Take Care Clause or something else. But uh, to say that there's any clarity on this issue, aside from the things that the Constitution specifies, treason, bribery, crimes and misdemeanors, um, would be a stretch. Thank you for that. Brown, what's your sense of how this might play out outside the courts in particular? In Congress, is it an impeachable offense and might Senate Democrats try to impeach over it? I mean, I, I think it's uh, difficult to imagine that a president violating uh, clear prescriptions in the Constitution wouldn't be an impeachable offense. Um, and, you know, it's worth noting that Congress, of course, could consent to uh, his receipt of otherwise prohibited emoluments under the Foreign Clause, um, but there's not any provision for congressional consent to the Domestic Emoluments Clause. It's an absolute prohibition. And so if, you know, even if Congress were to consent um, with respect to the Foreign Clause, if the president uh, ran afoul of the Domestic Clause, um, he would be in violation of the Constitution, which, you know, I think uh, would be grounds for impeachment. And, you know, I think what we're also going to continue to see is a very vigorous and robust um, public conversation about these clauses and the Constitution and um, the extent to which they, you know, limit the president and should limit him. Wonderful. Uh well, this has been a superb discussion, and I think we well mooted the arguments for and against whether the clause applies to the president, whether uh, President Trump's business dealings uh, violate the clause, and whether or not there's standing to bring uh, a suit in court. So it's time, uh, Andy and Brian, for closing arguments. Andy, let me ask you to tell our listeners whether or not you believe that President Trump's business dealings violate the Foreign Emoluments Clause and whether you think a court will rule on the issue and how it will rule. I think his business activities could violate the clause, but we have to do this on a transaction-by-transaction transaction basis. Uh, I would be shocked if a court ever addresses that question. Brian, your thoughts about whether or not President Trump's business dealings violate the Constitution and whether or not you think a court will rule on the question. Uh, you know, it certainly seems like he is running afoul of the Constitution. I'll I'll add to your listeners' uh, light reading. Uh, 
uh, of Andy's article, The Crew Complaint, which I think does an excellent job of setting out the various ways in which um, the Trump Organization's business dealings um, are in conflict with the Foreign Emoluments Clause. Um, and I will join Andy in certainly hoping that a court takes this up, because I think, you know, the, as I said before, this was an issue of significant importance to the framers. I think it remains an issue of incredible importance, and um, it's one that deserves to be well-ventilated both within and without the courts. Thank you so much, Andy Graywall and Brian Gorad, for a illuminating and educational discussion of this open, crucial, and uh, deeply relevant constitutional question. We the People listeners, I'm going to take a flyer on this. Uh, this, as you can tell, is a t- tough open question. Uh, you've heard the arguments on both sides. Uh, write a short essay of a thousand words about whether or not you think the Emoluments Clause is violated. Send it to me, Rosen at constitutioncenter.org, and we'll post and recognize with great honors uh, the best essay. I've asked uh, Hugo to do that, and I would love you to do that as well. Uh, it is all part of our duty as citizens to educate ourselves about the best arguments on both sides of these hard constitutional questions before the country and make up our own minds. Brian, Andy, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, do check out the Live in America's Town Hall feeds. We've had some amazing programs recently with Solicitor General Don Verrilli and Trump's uh, first hundred days and the constitutional stakes. They're just a constitutional feast. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, which I read so calmly this week, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Just go to constitutioncenter.org and sign up now. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.